And we've just come in and just being brutal. I use the expression just rape and pillage the landscape. And here we are now trying to make amends and it's very, very difficult. Hi once again everyone, welcome to Really Interesting Women, the podcast which explores the journeys of some unique, interesting and inspiring women. We'll look at how they've negotiated life's challenges and obstacles and how they've made the path a little clearer for those who follow. My name is Richard Graham and my guest today has been a model, newsreader, host of Morning TV and then in the late 80s left all that and became a renowned sustainable land manager and writer, researcher who dedicated herself to developing and communicating improved agricultural systems and innovations in an era of rapid climate change. And as if that wasn't enough, I understand she's now undertaking a new and very exciting venture I need to find out more about. To unpack all this, let me introduce you to Dr. Patrice Newell. Patrice, welcome to Really Interesting Women. Hi, Richard. Good to be here. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you. And But before we jump into it, Patrice, the first question as with all farmers, is weather-related. Has the rain eased for long enough in the Hunter region and have you been able to pull the organic purple garlic out of the ground? So today, as we speak, not only is the garlic out of the ground, we've had four weeks where we've um, managed to um, struggle to cure it. Garlic is a very unusual, obsessive crop, and when you take it out of the ground, you have to cure it, or people say dry it, yeah. until it's ready to sell. And that's been the really challenging thing because we took it out. It was probably the best crop we'd ever had, and then it rained and rained and rained, and then it flooded, and then of course people couldn't get in and out. And we, because we sell the garlic uh, direct to customers. We have Australia Post um, come and pick it up, and they couldn't get in either. But as we speak now, uh, we're finished. It's all done and dusted. But it was, without a doubt, the most challenging time uh, from the day we took it out of the ground. But that's the story of so many farmers this season. It's been an incredible, incredible turnaround, drought to flood, and... Everywhere, I the conversations I've been having, except for the cattle uh, producers who are riding a high price phase, everyone's had a pretty confronting time. Certainly, the crop growers. Yeah, mm. and it's and it's the frustrating thing I imagine is it's out of your hands. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, I've I've got a mate who's a farmer in Moree, and he loves to whinge. Don't get me wrong, but there's always a you know, the, it's the weather or he's damaged himself somehow doing something, but it's out of your control. That's got to be frustrating at times. Absolutely. Mm. Always. Yeah. Look, just so just to wind back to see how we got to talking about rain and garlic, you actually grew up in Adelaide. Do you look back on that with fond memories? Well, I do. I I think my childhood, 50s and 60s, was a pretty average one. We were not an affluent family, but everybody felt the same. You know, parents had jobs. They often didn't like them. Everyone was working hard. The fact that I remember when we had a television, a black and white one, and then when we were lucky enough to have a colour one, 
Um, Dad had two cars during the time my childhood there. Uh, that was the biggest asset other than the house uh, that we had. Uh, it was a, a slower life, I'd say. Mm. It was certainly without a lot of mod cons, but we we felt part of a community. We felt safe. We but but the thing, even with school holidays now, when kids oh the hot school holidays went quickly, they'll say, and I'll go. I remember school holidays being so long mm. and so boring, mm. uh, and yet it's interesting to me today. That's one of the biggest differences uh, where everybody speaks of this speed. Uh, and that must be a pretty frustrating thing because the slowness of our life back then, I look back on, I suppose I look back on that with fondness, really. Yeah, well, we yeah. know how to be bored, I think. I don't think yeah. the younger generation <laughs> does. And it's, you know, it's a, I was going to ask, what part did you think community played in those fond memories? Well, uh, you see, being part of the community didn't mean you had friends necessarily within it. They were your community, but they were people that who knew you. You know, if I broke my bike, as I, you know, was rode it down to the tennis court and broke it on the way back, I would know everyone in that street who would come out and say, oh, I love what happened. <laughs> it's yeah, it's yeah. The, the recognition of who you are and the knowing of the people within, you know, walking to school, walking to the bus stop, to the tennis courts, to the swimming pool, et cetera, et cetera. We just knew everybody in all the streets. Mm. And that is the thing that, uh, you know, even now, people don't know their neighbours in the country, let alone have relationships with them. Right. I know, yeah. So I, it's, not just, it's not just an urban thing. I, I think now it's, it's also a rural thing, particularly with so many... Uh, city people buying farms who actually don't live on their farms. Yeah. There's just such a such a movement ever since we've been there of farms that are pretty idle and unoccupied during a lot a lot of the time. Mm. So, who do you think were your biggest influences growing up? Then I sort of do know that answer because when I was young, i I did dream of leaving Adelaide. I, from a pretty early age, <laughs> and at, at, yeah, I just thought it wasn't enough for me at, from a pretty early age. And it, I was 13 when my mother had me do the deportment course I didn't want to do, which then led to a modelling career. And at that time, you know, I'm a young girl, I'm 13, 14, 15, when you do fashion parades in a, uh, in a department store in Adelaide or a little advertising thing. Uh, and I do, I do that before or after school. Mm. But I met a different network of people, and I met professional women because most of the mothers in my community were were not working. My mother did work; she cleaned the factory, the offices at the Woolies factory, and then she was worked in the Hush Puppies uh, factory, and she rode her bike, push bike, to both of those jobs. Yeah. So my mum did work. But a lot of the mums didn't work, or they only worked part time. And doing things like often sewing, you know, very practical things that they were able to contribute to the home economy. Yeah. Uh, and of course, they did work because they were working at home, but they weren't getting paid work. I should mm. stress that. Uh, 
But I did feel I wanted to get out. And my fantasy was uh, to meet someone as creative as I, – I laugh at this now – Someone like Pablo Picasso. I right. Thought. Yeah. I wanted to. I wanted to meet a genius like Pablo Picasso. That was <laughs> one of the things. Or uh, Jimi Hendrix, or Bob Dylan, or Joni Mitchell. Yeah. Right. That I wanted to be. I wanted to be in a more creative environment, and that's why a lot of the people that I grew to hang out with. I think it was probably a step out of the modelling thing. Was um, musicians and artists and all the people that I got to meet indirectly via that that world. Mm. I did read, talking about the modelling, that you were able to distance yourself a bit from getting too caught up in that world. How did you do that? Oh, well, I had a pretty, well, it's recognising this weird thing that happens to young models where people think, they meet you because, and then they've seen you in an ad or something and they are confused and think you are that person in the ad. Like I'm sure actresses and actors have it all the time. Mm. Uh, but I was very young, maybe 14, and there was a guy that I loved at a little dance club we used to go to and he never paid any attention to me. And then when I did this TV ad, he was absolutely all over me and introduced <laughs> me as the girl in this ad. And wow. I remember being so appalled that yeah. he did it. I then, of course, immediately didn't like him, but it, it, my antenna was up from that very early age on how people responded to you in this different way. And, of course, in my day, modelling, you know, it was a little bit embarrassing. I, I actually never used to tell people that I was a model because I thought it was just like a bit of a stupid temporary job and it didn't have the kudos and the sort of star factor that it seems to have today. Yeah. So I was. It was always a thing that enabled me to earn some money, and of course, I was meant to be a nurse, and I would have been a nurse if the hospital at Darwin hadn't have um, disappeared in the cyclone. Was oh, that right? Cyclone Tracy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that so seventy four or whenever that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and so uh, there I was in Adelaide with my bags packed, ready to go. No. The cyclone hit. Yeah, the cyclone hit. Um, of course, there's no paperwork, nothing there. You know, we didn't have the telecommunications we have now. No. Uh, and obviously, I finally made contact with someone who could tell me, well, I guess my nursing apprenticeship isn't going to start now. They said, well, there's no hospital. You can't come. But can we talk to you in six months? And during that time, I started modelling and then I left Adelaide. You, you, you had that. So I never. Yeah, right. I never. Otherwise, but I often reflect, you know, it was just a fluke. I was oh. suddenly without a direction. I was sitting at home. That was pretty unsatisfactory. I would have been, I just turned 18 and I was keen to move on. Sliding doors moments, isn't it? It's just uh, quite amazing what what happens or results as a, you know, as a result of that. But um, do you think that's one of the potential issues with the myriad of Instagram models and influencers who have hundreds of thousands of followers openly admiring them, that they lack a perspective that you were able to lean on? I think it must be very, very challenging for girls today. The other thing uh, in my day, well, no one knew your name. You know, when right. you, if you had a cover of, a, if you're on the cover of a magazine, 
well, your name wasn't published anywhere. You were just a face. You were just a model. You were the and McLean's so you, toothpaste. Woman. Yes, well, no one. Yes, I was. I yeah. was. Yeah. But you know, no one looked at that and said, there's Patrice. They just mm. saw the McLean's ad girl. Yeah. So whereas these days uh, models' names are known and when you get into that calibre of hundreds of thousands of followers, well, absolutely they know your name. So much more challenging. I mean, I never gave a toss about walking down the street looking pretty grubby and dirty if I was, you know, painting a flat or something. You know, I'd just walk down the street. I wouldn't care less, but I, I bet you would this yeah, day and age. Yeah, yeah, You'd yeah. probably be a bit nervous about being snapped looking absolutely daggy or oh, something. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but when was the last time, Patrice, that someone said, hey, are you McLean showing or something like that to you? Do you Every that, now and then yeah, in, in a strange way they say you look like that girl who did that ad you know I get that sort of thing but um, you know as I get older I guess uh-huh. it's, it's pretty funny <laughs> yeah it's, it, it, I doubt it's going to happen much anymore it's they they hear it as a as an I they hear it about me as a sort of an idea well it, it yeah. and, and I I googled it and saw the ad and it was such a Yes, you know, I just remembered every part of it too. It was such a uh, an institution of an ad in those days. So it's um, it's go onto YouTube and search Patrice Newell oh, okay. McLean's, <laughs> and then wait. How um, important has it been for you, generally speaking, to be open to opportunities? Oh well, hundred percent. Yeah. I, I would say from a very early age, because I was just busting to get away from Adelaide, uh, I was always tuning in to you know, how I was going to make my escape, like back then, and and also very worried about being able to be financially secure. In actual fact, modelling is or was for me the best uh, foundation for living in a gig economy, I only, in my entire uh, employment uh, period, only at SBS was I ever on a wage. Right. Every other time I was on a con- I've been on a contract. So I've never had that, that financial security of knowing what sort of money I was going to get next week. Mm. And so I have planned my, my financial management in a accordingly, which I think is very much like what so many people do today. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like I've I've had a life of that, and of course, when I got into agriculture, in many many ways, I really don't have the personality for agriculture. I I would have been in it about three or four years when I realised I started. I was starting to get quite anxious, and I realised a lot of um, the brain. A good agricultural brain is really a brain that manages gambling yeah. because, you know, you have to be a really big risk taker. Yeah. And I don't think I, I, I'm intrinsically not. And so I, every time things would happen, I'd be very, very challenged. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, and I so, want to talk about that in a second. But I just wanted to, um, as you mentioned, journalism became the priority, and, and you worked as a researcher for Kerry O'Brien. And leading from that, an opportunity came up, as you mentioned, with SBS. 
When you were you were there, you were doing a report on the film industry. You interviewed a certain Philip Adams, very well known writer, broadcaster, and media personality. And from that encounter, from what I've read, you described him as pompous and quite patronising. So, mm. how did we go from that, Patrice, to eventually being his life partner? What what was it that intrigued you enough to not dismiss him out of hand because of that first meeting? Well. <laughs> I, I guess there was a spark there. Also, when you're interviewing someone for an, an, in an interview, you then go back to the studio and you spend quite a bit of time looking at that interview as you edit it for whatever the story was that we were doing. So it's not like it's there one minute and over and forgotten. It's sort of also there mm-hmm. revisiting it uh, in the editing room. Um, but clearly there was a spark there. But but what you just said was, you're right, I was a model. Next minute, I was a researcher. And it's a that little narrative, model, researcher, Kerry O'Brien, then I met Philip, then basically I, I wouldn't have moved to the farm if it hadn't have been for Philip, I don't think. Uh, although I had been dreaming of a farm prior to Philip. But Every one of those steps, they were fluky things. They were not planned. Mm. And, and it was through taking a suggestion and acting on it. I think you could interview Philip Adams for that. You should try him. Look, you know, try and ring him at there, you know, see if you can get on to him and do an interview. Yeah. Mm. Okay, I didn't mm. have to. Mm. Um, um, my friend Anna said, hey, Patrice, you should meet Rick. You know, he's working at Channel 7. Go and see him and talk to him about working in the newsroom. You know, maybe there's something there for you. At that stage, I was trying to transition out of modelling. I met Rick and then Rick rang me back a few, I can't remember exactly, later and said, I remember this, did I want to be a serious person? I always laugh at that because there's me, a little model, thinking, oh, my God, I'm doomed just to be this, you know, perceived as a silly model. Do you want to be a serious person? Because he knew I was a serious person, I think. I'm going, yes. (laughs) Well, there's a job here. Come in. I think there's a job here for you. Come in and meet the team. So that's how that worked with Kerry. But Kerry, and as he he has said, oh, my God, am I really going to have a model, ex-model as my researcher? But, boy, I was the most determined, enthusiastic, hardworking researcher to Mm. prove and so, so grateful to get out of that world of modelling and didn't care that I had a massive pay cut in the process. Right. So, yeah, it was – yeah, so that is a classic case of all those unexpected casual suggestions which led to, you know, quite transparent certainly professional transformation and then ultimately personal. And it's, but it's taking those opportunities and it does take a certain, I think, braveness to do that. Um, but from the, nearly all the women that I've spoken to on this show have done that at some stage, said, grab it, let's go for it. Um, but I, I needed to ask, because I heard an interview recently with a very prominent female sports reporter who said that the vast majority of criticisms she got were about her looks and what she was wearing and her hair. Was that sort of attitude something you experienced and therefore a part of why you left the industry? Left television? Yes. Oh. No, television wasn't for me, really. It, it, 
again, it's like I was meant to be a nurse and that I actually wanted to be a nurse when I had applied for the job at Darwin Hospital. And the fact that I've become a farmer, I'm a carer for landscapes. I had intended to be a carer of people, mm. but to me, caring for landscape is foundational to caring for people. So, in a way, it's quite similar, uh, but the well, the intention is similar. It's about care, whereas television. I mean, talk about. I found the the culture of television very, very challenging, and I was pretty grateful to be able to get out of it. Mm. Well. Philip Adams said of you in an, in an interview that when I met her, she had a little flat in King's Cross and her only agricultural interest was a ficus plant in a terracotta pot. Within a year or so of that, she was running a 10,000-acre cattle property. So from TV journalist with a potted ficus plant to large-scale farming, it's not a typical move. Why did that happen? Well, I had wanted to be... You know, have lived in a rural setting, I suppose, and was an unformed idea back then in my twenties. But I'd always kept in the back of a wardrobe a box of old clothes for my farm life. So I had been in my dream, in my internal personal fantasy, having a thing about being on land and being able to just be. Uh, in within a landscape, but when I took that job with Kerry O'Brien, he the reason why I got the job was they needed a researcher because he was researching on chemicals, and it was chemicals in industry, agriculture, and domestic use, and that was my first television job. That's what I researched, mm. and we often joke, you know, I've never sort of moved on because I've been obsessed about the appalling use of chemicals in agriculture ever since. And I learnt a lot because that um, that documentary series, Kerry won a Walkley Award for it, and the we were inundated. Channel Seven was inundated with people ringing up with stories, of which then led to all this other research that followed on about farmers farming without chemicals and stories about contamination all across Australia. So I learnt a lot through that era about what was happening with landscape management and pollution. So um, it wasn't 100% just, you know, out of thin air, the idea. Mm. I, I had been thinking and engaged and angry about what I'd been learning. So when we were fortunate enough to move to the Upper Hunter, I wanted to bring the things that I'd learned during that research period uh, to the farm. So, yeah. It, You've become a, a passionate it, conservationist and biodynamic farmer. Can you explain briefly what biodynamic farming is? Yes. And I that first began to during the Kerry O'Brien um, period at Channel 7 in the early 80s. Wow. Um, biodynamic was started by a German philosopher, Rudolf Steiner. People know Steiner through the Steiner School, so he's big on education, architecture, and a lot of other things. But foundational to his work was helping farmers in Europe in the 1920s 
to get over the problems that they were getting when they started to introduce inorganic um, nasty fertilizers and things. So he developed a, a system of being able to use the plants to develop improved compost, which they activate through a stirring procedure, which helps increase the biological activity of the soil to help them overcome problems. So that is the foundation of biodynamics. The bio-biological dynamic, biologically dynamic Mm. soil is what biodynamics is. And it it is organic farming, but it's the technique that the biodynamic people use that, and I describe myself as a biodynamic farmer because we use those techniques. Now, if I'm an organic farmer, I probably don't, I might, if you're an organic farmer, you can basically have the same mindset as a conventional farmer and use organic inputs just like you may have used chemical and inorganic inputs on in your operation. Right. Whereas biodynamics, it's about building soil and um, developing a proper ecosystem for the plants to thrive. Mm. So it's really in this day and age, it's way, way, way ahead of its time. And it was nearly 100 years ago, Steiner, had that those very first meetings with farmers wow. uh, in Europe. Um, mm. In an interview with the Newcastle Herald in 2006, you said, the land is a living organism. It is being deeply stressed. We need to bring back its vitality and not in any way diminish it further. Has what you're doing with the land made you appreciate more the way Indigenous people have looked after and curated this land for over 60,000 years, whereas we've almost completely buggered it up after 240 years? Well, completely. But the other thing for me is 15 or so years ago, I learned that my birth mother, I'm adopted, my birth mother was Aboriginal. And my birth mother, um, uh, um, Mary, was a Gunjutmara woman. And Gunjutmara country is country which we now call the Western District of Victoria. And since I've had the privilege of now, my mother passed away in the 1980s, so I never got to meet her. But I have met um, her brother, who's also since passed away, and I have been down to Gunjutmara country where, Bajbim, where there, um, there's a World Heritage Site now recognising the remarkable land management and water management of the eel traps and the hydration of this whole valley. Yes. Yes. And, I, and I often reflect that in my DNA, unaware I was unaware of it, was this passion for land management, water management, and that, you know, it's it's not lost knowledge because they're doing a fabulous thing of recording it and trying to Mm. explain it to people. But you're absolutely right. There's no doubt. The system that all the different Aboriginal communities had across Australia tuned into the ecosystem where they were living. Well, and and we've just come in and just being brutal. I use the expression just rape and pillage the landscape. And here we are now trying to make amends and it's very, very difficult. 
to do that when you've destroyed so much. Yeah, I mean, shouldn't we be asking Indigenous people more questions about this and then listening to their answers? Okay, I agree. Well, there's two things. It's, you know, when you, when Indigenous communities have been so brutalised and broken up and their heart and soul um, moved to, like most Aboriginal people do not live today on the land of their ancestors. So that is a, a fact. And often when you meet an Indigenous person living in your community, their ancestral group is from somewhere else. So the great tragedy is the actual specific knowledge on land. But I know with in my area, so my farm is in Wanarua country, um, the conversations we had, I think one of the key most important things is that we invite the community back to the land. I meet many farmers that don't even know what Aboriginal land they farm on, but it is important to invite um, the community back on the land so that they are also sharing and feeling the land again. Because um, my family members down in the Warrnambool, sort of Portland, Port Ferry area in Victoria, many don't know farmers. They don't go back to their ancestral land. So so they need to be invited back. Mm. They were pushed off. They need to be invited back is the key thing. So it's not just saying, oh, you know, we have to find them to tell us how to do it. I don't think that's not the thing. The fact is they're not on the land. They don't have access to land. They're not being invited. They're not sharing in any of the experiences on the farmland that is now, you know, over their cultural land. Yeah, right. Yeah, of course. Um, Look, there is, going on to something that's probably far more trivial, but there is an issue I have to get to the nub of here, and that's you and Philip seem to have formed a formidable farming partnership, each bringing particular skills to the table. But... Going back many years, there were moments of great strain, as I understand it, none greater than that caused by the treatment of Malcolm. What happened there? Do you remember? Okay, so, yeah, I remember. <laughs> but I, that, that is, see, okay, so that, to me, that's, you know, a male narrative. We <laughs> had a bull. He loved his bull. His bull was very useful when we had him, a black Brahmin bull. And then the bull became a very ratty, disruptive, fence-destroying bull, and eventually I sold him. And Philip was very upset about that. But, okay, and I think I paid the price. The fact that you are mentioning that yes, yeah. <laughs> 25 or so years yeah. on, I think is remarkable, just well, remarkable. It, uh, because, but but yeah, we 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 all yeah. know Patrice that um Philip has quite a turn of phrase, but and I just wanted to clarify. So he said in an interview, Patrice and Phil, that's the farm manager, sold Malcolm and people ate Malcolm, and when I got back here, there was no Malcolm and it still rankles, and 
Like I reckon it gets worse because he was sort of adding not just salt to a wound, but a bit of poetic license, I think, when he went on to say, I still go out sometimes on winter nights and I call out for Malcolm, but he never comes. Please tell me he made that last bit up. Yeah, of course. Jeez. <laughs> now, look, since you started, there's been a significant increase in the number of biodynamic farms. Do you know the statistics on now about how many there are? I can't answer that. Uh, I don't know the answer to yeah. that. No, there was... I do know that the acreage of organic biodynamic certified land has increased. Primarily, the acreage of certified land has increased, but that is uh, due to cattle. So Australia, the biggest sector, the biggest agricultural sector in Australia is the beef industry. And organic beef, there's a big market for organic meat being exported. Right. That has driven the acreage of certification into the beef industry. Now, it's a, it gives a, an incorrect statistic to me because you can bang on about acreage. But really, the, a, lot of what, a lot of organic food is still going into processed food. That's being exported. See, it's important that there is more certified organic biodynamic land management, I think. Because when you're certified, you're going through a process of proving your actions. What seems to be happening, people are doing natural they're doing traditional, they're doing regen, it, none of it's certified. It's a, it's a language that's used around doing it better because it feels good. It's not, it's not proven. Mm. You know? and, and there appears to be a bigger, certainly a growth in that type of land management, what's, what's been put under that umbrella. Yeah. Now, this will, I think, morph into this other certified area, which will be the carbon farming, the carbon sequestration, the offsetting type factor. There will be this other group. But in the end, the, the biodynamic fraternity is primarily, in Australia, is primarily food of grain, fruit and veg, you know, fruit trees, yeah. great diversity of products for the Australian market. Yeah, it's it's Australian market. And a lot of the, I think, the biggest number of biodynamic properties would probably still be in Victoria because Alex Podolinski, the leader who introduced biodynamics, or one of them who introduced biodynamics to Australia, he was foundational in, in, um, uh, in Victoria. He was at Powtown in Victoria. Right. Now, I understand now that as if you weren't busy enough, you've pivoted again and started another venture, which sounds amazing. Can you tell me about Koala? Yes, well, Koala, K-W-A-L-A, is something that I have been working on for two years, and it's an investment app, an ESG investment app, and we'll be launching it next year. And this this has really come out of a group of us, six um, foundational founders, three of us working full-time virtually for over a year to develop and build an app for people that really want to engage in improved financial management, financial investments with an ESG vision. 
so environmental social governance vision, who believe in climate change and want to make sure that their spare cash, if they are investing it, isn't going anywhere near the old polluting economy. Right. That's amazing. I mean, what? that's a lot of work, as I understand, because I know someone who's going through that process. What motivates you to take such a big step right now? Uh, what do you mean Why right you? now? Because, well, <laughs> because it's not the guy, the guy I was talking about is 23, you know, and he's starting an investment app and doing all that sort of thing. And I just thought that's a lot of work and a lot of intensity. Why, why do that now? I can assure you, I can assure you planting an olive grove and selling olive oil is intensive. Um, breeding a good cattle herd is intensive. Growing garlic is intensive and koala is intensive. But that's, I think, writing a book, doing a PhD is intensive. I mean, that to me is not the thing. It's whether or not you feel you you want to give your heart and soul into it and that it's important. Mm. I mean, you know, when I did my PhD on slow pyrolysis technology, biochar, I believe biochar and biomass, improved um, biomass um, bioenergy was a really, really, really important climate change solution. I still do. Uh, One of the things that's been the great tragedy that's happened in the last 20 years is the economy and the increase in um, social inequity. Social injustice is a real problem close to my heart, really, really felt in the regional areas. And now technology can help provide a service that makes financial um, participation easier. So to me, it is a fabulous opportunity and why not now? I mean, I've still got the stamina for it. Well, and I think what is going to happen for, I feel sorry for young people, what am I going to do? Well, who knows what you're going to do? Mm, you, know? mm. you might do this in your 20s and that in your 30s and that's the exciting thing. And that's what I feel now at my age. It doesn't matter. You do if you feel your heart and soul can make a commitment to it and that you really believe that work is important. I, look, to me, um, Patrice, it's been one of the biggest motivating factors in what I'm doing here at the moment on this show because the number of women I've sp- spoken to who are in their 60s, 70s and even 80s who are still highly active and involved and engaged and therefore engaging is so inspiring and motivating. Oh, I just think it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, and I just... Thank you so much for your time, Patrice Newell, but I have one final question, and that is, what makes you most proud of yourself? Why didn't you ask me earlier that you were going to ask that question? Because I want some spontaneity. Uh, I don't don't know. (laughs) I I don't know if I can answer that with any uh, aptitude at all. I, I, I really can't answer that. Well, what about if because you look out your window right now and see what you've done around you, which is quite extraordinary, you know, I think. Uh, well, yes, I, I suppose the greatest pleasure, the greatest love has been um, my daughter. 
Mm. That would be, you know, who I'm so proud of and the age of 29 is, you know, living a very, very decent, good life in the face of a climate emergency. And I'm proud as anything of her. So I, my achievement, I mean, I don't regard my child as my achievement in any way, but in terms of something that gives me hope, gives me happiness, out of every, she would trump everything, That's without true. a doubt. Yeah, look, thank you so much for giving so generously of your time. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you and just wanted to thank you for being such an important part of Really Interesting Women. Thanks, Richard. All the best. Okay. Thank you for being a big part of Really Interesting Women. We'll have relevant links in the show notes to this episode. Head to our Instagram page at Richard Instagram for photos of the guests and the all-important link to all the episodes in our bio. If you know someone who might be a great guest, direct message me from Insta. Thank you to our production team and I look forward to your company again very soon. Bye for now.